Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. This episode of 10 News First Person contains material relating to domestic violence. If domestic violence is an issue in your life, please contact the National Counseling Service 1-800-RESPECT on 1-800-737-732. In 1985, Andrea Blanchard had finally given up the fight to free herself and Trudy from her violent and vindictive husband, Leonard Warwick. She had agreed to give him everything he wanted, custody of their daughter and the assets he was so desperate to hold on to. So, coming up to... Um, what was going to be the last court proceedings between Warwick and Andrea, Uh, Warwick told a friend of his that he was going to receive $30,000 for a media interview. I, I do not know if he received any money. But in all the attempts by police and others to interview Warwick over the years, the only person Warwick has ever spoken to is Terry Willisey on the Terry Willisey Tonight Show. Warwick told his friend that he was going to use some of that money to pay off Andrea. The 21st of April 1986 is the last day that Andrea spent in the Family Court of Australia. Warwick did not even bother to show up. Andrea conceded all to Warwick, and she is recorded as saying, I just want this matter to be over once and for all. In conceding everything to Warwick, what that meant is she gave Warwick sole custody of Trudy, full ownership of the car, the matrimonial home, its contents, that's the matrimonial home at Kasula, as well as his entire superannuation. She felt she needed to concede everything to have some safety. So after all that she'd been through, after all that Warwick had put her through, and at this point she strongly suspects that Warwick is behind all these attacks despite the fact that he hasn't been arrested for them, was she just at her wit's end at this point? Absolutely terrorised, beyond anything I can possibly imagine. And I have been with a lot of terrorised people. And she cannot be judged for what must have been the act of a desperate, frightened woman who was also frightened for her child. If she and Trudy had stayed together as they want to, Warwick would not have given up. That was her full belief Based on all the facts, with absolute conviction, she made the right decision and ca- and cannot be judged for that. Do you think that that decision may have saved more lives? I do. I do. And Trudy 
Trudy's alive. Andrew's alive. Yes, ab- absolutely. Absolutely. It's tragic that she had to be the one who sacrificed to stop those attacks, but it seems that that's what had to happen. It's what had to happen, and it shows the depth and depravity of Warwick to have achieved that through those means. The police investigation continued with a special bomb task force on the case and several coronial inquests conducted into the deaths resulting from the attacks. The last of the inquests was um, about Mrs Pearl Watson and that ended in July 1984. After that inquest closed, that significant task force body, which had reached its peak at that time, it started to wind down. So through the second part of 1987, after they'd been going for three years themselves, uh, they started to archive their material. And that's the material that I've referred to as being in the 150 or plus, I think it's actually 155 archive boxes. So they had made, you know, huge efforts over three years. During that bomb task force, um, the coronial inquests, all the investigations that went on in subsequent years, was Warwick a suspect? Yes, Warwick was called to, I think, all the inquests, and uh, as were others. Uh, yes, Warwick loomed large all the way along. Nothing was achieved. Along with other people? Along with other suspects. So apart from that one media interview that he did, Mm. he never spoke to any police officer or any member of authority, even when he was called at the coronial inquests to testify. That's right. So he either doesn't speak or he just uses a confused set of words that has no meaning Mm. to fill in a gap. So he's giving the impression of cooperating. He says nothing of substance, nothing of value, nothing of truth. In 2013, Pamela Young was a detective chief inspector who had decided to do a stint at the Unsolved Homicide Squad. That year, a story aired on Channel 7's Sunday night program with journalist Ross Coulter, which made waves and got the attention of New South Wales Police. It prompted a decision from police leadership to take another look at the family court bomber case. It was Pamela who took it on and assembled the team she believed would be best for the job ahead. Here, Pam takes us through her early days on the case. It was really important that I made it my own, that I have to, it has to become part of me, part of what I want to achieve. So I'm an exacting detective. I'm a meticulous detective, a demanding boss of detectives, and I have very high expectations the highest of which I have of myself. But I was the perfect combination of head and gut for Warwick. That's what I believe. So I'd landed in cold cases in January 2013. I'd come off a long run on the homicide on cold cases. And by that time, I'd actually done two tours of the homicide squad on-call teams and that totaled 15 years. 2012 had been a year uh, at full pelt, including the 11 Quakers Hill nursing home murders, which had occurred right at the end of 2011. 
Um, I asked my superintendent if I could slip through the side door into cold cases for a breather. Uh, for a breather from being called out in the middle of the night, basically. He happened to think that the cold case teams needed stirring up. So it was a match made in heaven. In July 2013, on the back of that car park interview footage between Warwick and the journalist Ross Coltart, the boss asked me to get a team together. I grabbed Detective Senior Constable Matt Heffernan, who had been chipping away at the bombings for several months for my 2IC. I invited Detective Sergeant Matt Russell on board as my officer in charge, as we had worked well together on the active teams over many years. I added our in-house intellect, Detective Senior Constable Mel Staples, who I had been first impressed with at the Sex Crime Squad. I had as good a gender balance as I have ever been able to bring off five men and four women. Then Josh transferred to us from the suburbs. He had something we wanted. Our balance was a bit skewed then, but he turned out to be worth it. We named ourselves Strike Force Redden. The 150 plus boxes of archived investigation material would fill this room twice over. Seven major crimes and four coronial inquests add up to a hell of a lot of paper. These days, we of course have electronic information management systems. When used well, it allows rigorous storage and searching. But what we had was thousands upon thousands of typewritten pages referenced by typewritten index cards with flourishes of carbon paper and tipex, that era's equivalent of spellcheck. After a few days and a few boxes being explored, I could see the team were being curators of precious museum pieces. The only thing missing was the white gloves. It comes with the training of a good investigator. When you first arrive, you observe and leave things in situ. But not with this one. We needed to let the air in and bring it to life. If we did not make it our own, there was a risk we would get bogged down in the same places as those who had come before us. There were a lot of suspects, but three or four were curdled at the top. Warwick caught my eye like he had earlier investigators, such as Kevin Woods and Bob Ingster. Everyone on the team had multiple responsibilities, but straight up I picked team members who had an aptitude to become the team expert in at least one area. Mel became our bomb expert. Detective Senior Constable Julia Bradley obtained and read every word ever exchanged in the courts of Justices Opus, G and Watson, and all visited by our top suspects. I spotted another Detective Senior Constable as an exhibit obsessive-compulsive. She excelled. Detective Senior Constable Stuart Shell and Paul were devil's advocates. Stuart in particular didn't think Warwick should be our priority. That made him perfect to drill home to the team the evil merits of all the other suspects. Matt and Matt took a lead with engaging long, weary witnesses and finding new ones as the first thing we needed to do was to know absolutely 
what was in each and every one of the 150 boxes. My morning routine became a double shot and have you emptied the boxes yet? Every day I interacted with each team member and every week the team met. The team expert took the whole team through what had blossomed or died in their area of expertise. This was so we were all on the same page. We debated a lot. It was a mark of my leadership that I seek out and listen to all opinions and alternatives. Equally, I have honed strong instincts about what is worthy and what is wastage. Everyone who has ever been on any of my investigations knows that I'm a place to bring ideas. It was just that they had better be prepared. It was called being pamorized. There were over 600 other victims of unsolved homicides waiting within our walls for answers too. If Strikeforce Redden was not going anywhere, I was not going to let those other victims wait any longer than they had to. I would have shut down Redden. But I felt hope early on. Early investigations supported that Warwick was the only suspect who could be linked to each of the crimes. Sure, other suspects had taken actions that were openly threatening to justices and the courts. But there were too many coincidences around Warwick, and I do not believe in coincidences. He also stood out to me as heavier in some way than the other suspects. Something loathing and looming. I became comfortable looking at him with tunnel vision. Why was it so important for you to get the right balance right in your team, not just gender-wise, but skills and personalities? It, it is so important to the success of a job that the team composition is right. Often, you don't get to pick and choose. When I'm in a, a position in charge at Cold Case, I do have that privilege. Um, it's not always possible. But for a job such as this, it needed some really, a, a re the right combination of skills. I really did look to those individuals. It wasn't just numbers, it wasn't just gender. It was what I knew those individuals were capable of and how much stamina they had. And if I thought they might lack stamina, I, I felt I knew how to keep them focused. The team had multiple suspects and they all remained on the list until they could be ruled out. But it wasn't long before Warwick emerged as the undeniable prime suspect. He was one of the main suspects for the original investigations. I did a basic scan of him. They had established a link between him and each of the seven crimes. Just that alone was asking for my attention. And so there was another member of your team or more than one perhaps who thought that there was someone else or that perhaps Warwick wasn't the best sus suspect but that was a good thing for you it, it's essential so when Stuart in particular would voice that there were other better suspects that is such a great test of, of the rest of us and he wasn't the only one we as I say we debate a lot even at towards the end there were a couple of us who were convinced that Warwick had committed each and every crime, 
There were others who thought Warwick has committed a certain number of the crimes and that others were committed by another suspect. Um, but these are, these are essential for the, a robust, effective strike force that, that then does land in, its, in such a position of strength because everyone has brought their ideas and all for the right reasons. And we, la- we, we land where we land and we landed on Warwick. After months of meticulously combing through boxes of evidence and re-interviewing witnesses, there was finally a big break in the case. A key piece of evidence that would seal Warwick's fate. And it had been right under the noses of police all along. Roughly five months in, I think it was around October 2013, when I was still doing my morning routine of double shot and have you emptied all the boxes yet, Matthew Heffernan climbed out of the dark basement in the largest exhibit facility we have in the state. He carried with him a bag containing the 28-year-old blood-spotted carpet and cardboard from the Lanier Jehovah's Witness Temple. Heff was an old hand at cold cases. He had been in the unsolved homicide team for a few years and he knew that there had been success sometimes when you ignore the fact that what you're looking for doesn't appear on the register, when you politely ignore the guy at the door who is suffering from vitamin D deficiency and who has spent a lifetime arranging and reporting on the movement of exhibits, and you just look and search and look and search. Why should anyone expect to find an exhibit 28 years after it was collected and in a condition that's usable? The state cannot possibly store for an eternity the thousands of exhibits it collects every year. If the rules as they had existed at the time of the crime had been followed, that very exhibit would have been destroyed and no one could complain. It was perhaps the luckiest oversight that can be put down to a vitamin D deficiency and a tenacious detective. Trude gave us a comparison sample of her blood. Of course, the expert report is full of impressive jargon and stats, but its bottom line, the one we read and understood, was that the blood on the carpet was from the person who was the father of Trudy. Victims one, Warwick nil. But of course, a brief of evidence is going to be tested by the highest court in the state, so it cannot rely on one fact. Nor was one crime, the Jehovah's Witness temple bombing, going to satisfy us or all the other victims. We took another solid 22 months of investigation before we locked him up on the 29th of July, 2015. And we locked him up for all seven crime events. The DNA on the carpet was a significant find, but it wasn't the only piece of evidence against Warwick. The original police had done, I believe, if I remember, two search warrants on Warwick's Kasula home, the matrimonial home that's um, he's holding on to, and the federal police had done one um, at one stage. And from photographs taken by what were then called scientific police of the contents of his home. Uh, We had copies of those. Um, We enlarged 
those copies and we could find items through the home that were potentially linked to some of the bombings. Uh, in fact, I, my husband at that time was Claude and he was a ex-commando and he allowed him access to all the photos and he gave us a very long list of things on Warwick's um, benches and garage and all the odd places uh, that the thorough search warrant teams had collected and listed um, over 50 items that possibly could have been uh, used to make bombs. Apparently that's what commandos do well. The standout elements that became breakthroughs as well was a a diamond brand alarm clock, the same type of diamond brand alarm clock that was used in the Jehovah's Witness bombing. And that alarm clock, the it was in a position that didn't fit in with the home, is that correct? Yes, Warwick had a few, few clocks actually, um, and they were not telling the time, uh, meaning they were not working, or they were in areas where you wouldn't need to tell the time. There were just too, too many of them. Another very relevant item that, was, that appeared in these photos from the earlier search warrants was a book on Warwick's bookshelf about coal mining. Though it's quite a, a large book. We obtained a copy of that and Paul Mel had to read so many pages of technical detail his style was unsophisticated, but linked to um, what that book, how, the education that was provided in that book. And we remember too that his father was a coal miner. One of the other things that you guys did obviously was get his work rosters and prove that he was not rostered on during the time of all these crimes and therefore had opportunity. And from what I understand, he was the only suspect that you had that had opportunity to commit every single one of these crimes, is that correct? That's correct. Now, in relation to the original murder of Andrea's younger brother, I understand there was a bullet fragment that you ended up linking to Warwick. Was that linked previously or was that something that your team managed to do? My understanding of the evidence is yes, we had a fragment from a twenty-two that had been used to... Um, shoot Stephen dead and we had a fragment from the shooting murder of Justice Opus that was also a 22. Our problem was that the fragments themselves were insufficient to provide the detail. There has to be unique markings on the fragments for comparison. So we only got as close as determining that each of those murdered individuals had been murdered by the use of a 22. Warwick had a number of 22 rifles and other, other firearms and the early investigators recorded and I believe collected many of his firearms. Uh, we were not able to... so. The earlier police and us, with all the advances in the science around ballistics, forensic ballistics, we still unable to make a link. 
um, with Stephen's murder. And so a lot of your work in terms of putting the brief together for Warwick centred around his ability to have constructed these bombs. And apart from the coal mining book, there were quite a few other books that we won't name that suggested that he certainly did have the knowledge and had sought out that knowledge. What were some of the other reasons why you determined he was capable of this? Well, and this was through the charm of Matt Russell and others on the team to win over witnesses who'd previously not provided evidence about comments made by Warwick in relation to publications on on explosives that were illegal to have in our country, but that he purposely imported from overseas. I think it was America in particular. So that was um, another area that we, we obtained, and there are a lot of publications, so we obtained all of them and looked for direct links back to what he had done at the scenes, and we and we found those links. Once Pamela and her team had built a strong enough case against Warwick, it was time to plan the arrest, an arrest more than 30 years in the making. I decided to write up every piece of evidence that we had against Warwick across every crime into a single document. It took several months and I brain-drained Mel, our bomber, and the officer in charge. In the end, on the 17th of July, 2015, I signed off on a 110-page document with all the evidence pointing to Warwick. It was a complex document to write, but it was not a complex document to read or understand. The Guild of Warwick drips from its pages, so much so that I frequently ask myself, how was he ever missed? Due to the profile of the crimes and the anticipated victim and public reaction, I understood why the Assistant Commissioner asked me to present that evidence to a panel of in-house lawyers. We did that and the arrest and charging operation was given the green light for planning. You presented to this panel of internal lawyers. They say, yep, you're good to go. We think that there is enough evidence here to arrest Warwick. What happens now? We are so excited. We just want to get it done. But there's so many steps to take. Um, Whilst we might have liked to go out and just grab him that day, the risks around him with his history are not knowing at that stage. We had some idea he, he was living with a new family and where he was, but we had to also get to know his habits in the day. We had to pick a time where the public were least vulnerable when we arrested him in case he had a bomb in his bag, effectively. And as ridiculous as that might sound for the years that had gone by in his age, uh, you cannot afford to make a mistake like that on a man like that. You cannot. So you always play to the worst-case scenario, uh, which we did. With the home, the property that we did a search warrant on, we had to treat it as though it was going to be a small munitions factory. Um, Again, worst case scenario. So we gathered a lot of specialist police to help us uh, and all around a risk assessment that was extreme. Uh, So 
everyone from Polair to... Um, That's the police helicopter. Uh, the police air wing, yes. Mm-hmm. Uh, to ground surveillance in the weeks before we got to the arrest day. So he was followed extensively and very professionally. He didn't pick that he was being surveilled at all. Um, it's interesting, with earlier investigations around him, he did sometimes walk up to the police and say, are you watching me? He didn't catch out any of our teams. They really learnt a lot. Of course, everyone um, has learnt from others' mistakes in the past. So. Do you think that's perhaps as also because it had been so much time that had lapsed since the crimes that he'd perhaps gotten complacent, got yes, comfortable? Yes, you, you may well be right, Leah. Relaxed, relaxed in his new lifestyle with his new wife and children. Uh, perhaps he thought he had got away with it for forever. That's ideal for us because his guard's down. So in, in that preparation time, we found out one of his main habits was to attend a gym at Campbelltown. He was regular with his time and so regular and controlled, he would always exercise on exactly the same treadmill. So we did surveillance inside the gym and by we I don't mean my team Redden we're not up to it that close sort of surveillance really needs professionals (laughs) so we have photos of him merrily exercising Uh, that also gives us the an idea of the environment and uh, the conditions we might face if he did make a runner or have some explosive or or a gun with him when he moved around so just just essential that we build up that very clear, hands-on information about him. It was nothing to do with evidence. We, we were released from that. It was it's actually this is the fun bit, <laughs> getting getting um, prepared for this day. So the risk assessments we meant to do, and, and just just our own thoughts and and my own thoughts is is yes play this to worst case scenario so when we had a a acquired sufficient intelligence about his movement so actually photographs and and um and the like i decided the best arrest day was the 29th of july 2015 i think that's about two weeks after the evidence summary had been greenlighted it was as quickly as we could prepare everything and it was a day he was going to be on his favourite treadmill in his favourite gym at the same time. So early that morning, or not too early, it wasn't like a normal 5am briefing of which I've done many. I think it was civilised, it was an 8am briefing nearby, over 60 police in the room. So not just, um, not only the police air wing, but we had the police order and riot squad, uh, tactical police, we had the dog squad, we had explosive experts and then we had several groups of detectives for search searches once the search warrant was going to start at his property. We had three uh, teams of searches because the property is quite large with various outbuildings and the briefing was con- conducted then by me, I ran that briefing and a couple of the bosses were there, but it was run by me. Then we 
sit tight while our two main players, so Matt Russell and Matt Heffernan, and a safety team around them went to the gym. I think it was around 11 and walked up to Warwick, who's on his treadmill. They said who they were and they told him he was under arrest. His first response was words like, uh, sorry, this is when Matt said, where's your bag? Uh, They allowed Warwick to get his bag. And he said, don't worry, there's no explosives in it. That was the first and last thing he said on that day. Um, So he he was taken to the police station. As far as interviewing goes, we certainly had a plan, an interview plan, but I had no expectation that he would bother. And also I was only half-hearted about that anyway. We had so much evidence against him. A sit-down interview with him was not necessary for our purposes if he had if he had wanted to and of course he declined as he always had done previously we would have loved to take part in that uh, but he just did what he always does and who cares we didn't need it once he was securely arrested then I passed word to the search teams to move on to the property we did find his current wife and some of his children at home on the property. That search warrant started around 11.30 or or 12 midday and they were still going but finishing up around midnight. So it was a a full-on three-team search for over 12 hours. We found over 300 items of interest to us um, at that house. It all went off without any major issues at the house as well. It all went off without major issues. We were we were even prepared for booby traps and, and the like um, around his favourite type of munitions area, for instance. And afterwards, of course, when you think of those type of preparations that weren't needed, you think, oh, we could have saved time on all that. But sure enough, if we hadn't, made preparations for a catastrophe perhaps one one would have happened so I do think he'd got a bit sleepy in his old age I do think he'd thought himself far too clever but we woke him up from that he'd become complacent and comfortable that he'd got away with it yes because he did for 30 years yes 40 almost yes since the first crime yes yes Absolutely. And he had acquired another wife and children who he could express in his uh, control towards. And um, I, I was there and I had the impression that they were shocked and perhaps a bit angry, but... I know for sure that they will have realised that they're in a better position now, a position of safety, and um, there's some there's some satisfaction in that. So once he was arrested that day, he went into custody and he never came out again. He never got bail, even while he was on trial. The trial was a marathon. It, it went for 22 months, just as long as our investigation had. Um, he did play some games and I think he changed 
lawyers and slowed things down. A little giggle I have. A trial for murder is usually held in front of a judge and jury. And though Warwick asked his defence to apply that it be only in front of a judge, judge-only trials are usually reserved for trials that are going to be very, 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 very technical and or very, very long. The explosive information in the trial I didn't think met the technical complexity and at that stage we certainly didn't know it was going to go for 22 months. I was a bit disappointed. I thought Warwick needed to be judged by people in the community on these what really are personal attacks centred around domestic violence. I thought he had an advantage going down that path. But um, there you go, irony of ironies. Mm. It did turn out to be a very long trial. It would have been very hard, if not impossible, to hold the concentration of 12 or 13 jurors for all that time. We might have been facing the occasional aborted trial and even longer period. So... I thank for the one thing I thank Warwick for is actually asking for a judge alone trial. I think it's turned out well. Good evening. The name of the family court bomber is infamous in the history of Sydney crime. He struck terror into the hearts of his victims and the judicial system itself. But today that fear turned to satisfaction as Leonard Warwick was condemned to die in jail. Mr Warwick, the effect of these sentences is that you will spend the rest of your life in prison and will not be released. He was convicted of all of the attacks except for the first one. I was overjoyed that we had had such a great justice in Justice Garling. He, his judgment was so clear, everyone could understand his thought processes and his legal superiority. I was surprised and disappointed that Stephen was excluded from the guilty verdicts. I have read Justice Garling's remarks as to why he formed a reasonable doubt and I I respect entirely his wisdom. I still, though, think Warwick did it. But, But who am I to say that now? Warwick is, if not innocent, at least not guilty, of Stephen's murder. I do want to just say again such an important role Stephen's murder played for us and the focus on work that saved Andrea it's I can't get that that family connection out of my head it's a murder that is no longer under investigation but the person who was charged for it has been found not guilty however from what I understand police are not pursuing anyone else for that murder How did you feel when the sentence was handed down? Uh, Thrilled, um, excited, deflated, and I cried. All of those things. It was mesmerizing (laughs) in its, uh, in, in mesmerizing, in fact, that it had actually happened. It had come out of the mouth of Justice Garling and 
made so much truth out of so long a period of lies, deception and violence. And the three life sentences with no parole is fantastic and the best the best our land can offer. Just something about it doesn't sound like it's quite enough. Especially when you think about the fact that he got to live over 30 years after he had committed these crimes, a free man. He's now quite frail. You know, he's, he's using a walking frame from when I saw him at the trial. Oh, let's not let's not be too sympathetic. <laughs> Whether he genuinely needs it, that's a question for someone else, I suppose. But it must be somewhat hard for the victims and the families of the victims to to think that three life sentences, you know, he'll only serve that until he inevitably dies in jail. However, he's there. You got him. And uh, do you think that that has finally provided some comfort for the victims? I, I do, I do. And on the day of the verdict, with the maths, uh, we spent some time marking the day. I would never say celebrating, marking what had just happened. And there was relief and pleasure and thanks. But, you know, their lives still are forever changed. So, um, the, I just want to say how good the Crown prosecutors were. Matt Russell and Matt Heffernan have so much respect for them, our Crown prosecutor Ken Mackay and Gareth Christoffi uh, and their, their team. They did an excellent job and the families were expressing how appreciative they were of that too. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Warwick maintains his innocence. He said at his sentencing hearing that he, he still denies ever being responsible for any of these crimes, despite now being convicted and serving life for them. He has already flagged his intention to appeal the not guilty verdicts. Are you surprised by that? Not, not at all. He's in the perfect position to be who and what he is, which is a controlling type, um, full of self-belief and entitlement, f- dismayed that everyone else of any type or intellect or position of authority could possibly try an impact on his life. I'm not surprised at all that he'll appeal. I think he will um, not walk away from an appeal easily either, not because he knows he's innocent, but because he will play games with it. 
just as he did for many years before. I just want to acknowledge Stuart Shell, who I've mentioned before. He was our devil's advocate with a couple of others, uh, wondering why we'd put Warwick as a priority when there were other quite possible guilty suspects to be considered. Um, just he was, we had a lot of affection for him in the team and it was sad that as we were moving towards finishing the evidence summary and the arrest that Stuart, Stuart Shell died and um, left his beautiful wife and son um, but he'd made such a solid contribution to what then became Warwick's arrest day and also he was a full convert that Warwick was the guilty man and he would have loved to be with us on that arrest day. We're all sure of that. This case was the last one that you closed before you left the force. What have you learnt from it? Well, it might sound strange, but I, I didn't actually learn anything. But it was the ultimate case to apply all my hard-earned experience to. That experience told me to be meticulous, to keep the whole team focused right through to the end, not to be distracted by the blur of red herrings in the 150 boxes and to leave no boulder unturned. The killers out there have learned that any day, any time, there could be a knock on their door. Game on. It's a good message. I want to ask more about Warwick now that we've gone through everything that happened. Why do you think, at a unconscious or conscious level, Warwick did what he did? Just simply, he's a psychopath, a one-track mind. What does he want? What are his possessions? And how he can control them to his best advantage? It's no more complicated than that. It's horrific. But it's not complicated. What he did to each of those victims, do you think that that was to simply take them out out of convenience or was it more than that? Again, control to strike fear into Andrea's heart. Why, why didn't he, and sorry, Andrea, if you're listening to this, but why didn't he just kill Andrea like yes. so many others? And also, psychopaths believe they're superior to everyone else. So he came up with a clever plan, not to do do a simple, not to do a s simple crime or crimes, to make them elaborate, to make large statements, to to leave his mark, like a tomcat, on the world, to to play mind games from his cave when he felt like it, when he thought it would be most effective. Really, he's an idiot because he did leave so many coincidences once we had put them all together that really he was a bit of an amateur, but he's had a huge impact. Particularly the bombs. Every time he set one of those bombs, it seemed to be either a complete disregard for the fact that he could hurt or kill other people 
or a deliberate attempt to not only kill the one person that he was targeting, but those around them. He did not care less who who was included in his rampage, as, as long as the target, the one he wanted to have the impact on, was affected and he hoped, hopefully dead. He did not care that others were uh, killed and injured and their property, their homes, their children's bedrooms were destroyed, did not care. I would even go to say, no doubt, hoped it would have a large-scale effect. Whilst he was an unsophisticated bomb maker, it doesn't mean to say that he didn't take pleasure in putting four-kilo bomb in a little Tirana under the, under the bonnet. That wasn't an accident. Very dangerous. And he would be flattered by hearing that being said about him, but very dangerous. Someone who has obviously got a massive ego, he's a psychopath, as you believe, why has he never, even despite being convicted, sentenced, why has he never taken credit for any of this? Why hasn't he confessed, do you think? Because he doesn't need to. He was entitled to do what he did. There's nothing to confess to, Leah. With Leonard John Warwick now behind bars for the rest of his life, Andrea and Trudy are now finally free. But how do they rebuild after such a long battle against someone who has left such a large trail of destruction? I know that it's the mats that keep in touch with Andrea and Trudy, but how are they doing now? How are mm-hmm. Andrea and Trudy doing now? Well, they've formed, reformed their beautiful mother-daughter relationship. They live not far from each other. They've, there's growth and happy days for them. And it's um, so satisfying to know that they have been through such struggles as individuals and, and as mother and daughter. They have found each other again. And now they are completely and utterly safe. Andrea could well have carried around with her all these years up until his arrest, and maybe even then, if we hadn't been successful at trial, he'd got off. She would have felt a constant threat from that horrible man. But no no more, no more, it's all gone. There may well be women, people listening, who understand that feeling to some degree of being fearful of a current or former partner. This was, at its core, an extreme example of what can happen when a woman decides to leave a violent partner. Do you think that this should be a lesson in everyone who says, why didn't she just leave? This is a a very extreme example of why women feel like they can't leave. Yes, uh, it is a, a clear personal story of Andrea's that others can learn by but let's remember she she did leave she left uh, she put up with too much as as women do and when women have let their financial security go by the wayside for a motherhood um, it does put them in a vulnerable position but let's remember she she did have the 
courage and the protective feelings for Trudy to leave. It wasn't the leaving so much, it was the pain and suffering Warwick has kept in after she left. That all, all the power in the state really could not prevent. Shortly after Warwick was finally behind bars, Pamela left the police force. But after being on the front line of crime fighting, leading so many major investigations, experiencing the worst of humanity and witnessing the depths of people's suffering, it hasn't been easy for her to step back. You have now left the force without going into the the minutiae of, of exactly what happened that, that led to you leaving. This was your last case. How do you feel about this being the final case of your career? Well, it's kind of sweet because it is the first job in my uniform days out of the academy that I also was involved in as a guard and how, and how interesting it is to me that through circumstances it it's ended up being my last and one I felt very honoured um, to do, one that was very stimulating and engaging and purposeful and in the end successful. So I feel very fortunate to have, have done the full circle with this particular one. And you and the team should be very proud of what you've achieved for these victims and their families. Thank you, Leah. We are all in contact and we we have fond memories of how we got on and, and debated and the days we didn't get on. And uh, so it's um, our work can be so challenging and so confronting but so worthwhile and satisfying when we can when we can help. So I think your first question of me was why I joined the job and I told you that I joined because it sounded exciting, that I wanted to pit myself into an unusual environment for a woman of my era and that's true but I not long into the job I knew I was starting to love it and then by the end I'd gone even past loving it I was in love with it and that's why. It will always be something I'm proud to have done and never regret joining all those years ago. Even though it's taken quite a heavy toll on you all those years? It has, it has taken a heavy toll. I um, eventually was diagnosed with PTSD and by eventually I mean, and you might have picked up on my style by now, but I had highly qualified clinical professionals trying to tell me that I had PTSD and I just kicked into my debating mode and completely denied it, didn't think it related to me at all. And I, it took over a year for me to accept that, yes, I too had PTSD. Yeah, and, and it, I have no shame or embarrassment around that at all. Any of us, any person in any form of emergency services must suffer 
a degree of PTSD. It, it is just by what degree. It's not that they've escaped it, especially when you stay for 32, 33 years. Uh, it's just by what degree. And I, I found it actually another thing I love learning. I found, I've loved learning about it. <laughs> I've, um, it's my cross and my friend. And, um, yeah, it's, it's a permanent part of my makeup now. But I, I have so many fond memories of how I got it. <laughs> <laughs> Do you think there needs to be better understanding and better support for police officers and other emergency services who do suffer PTSD, as they inevitably will? Uh, completely. There, there is, there's two sides to it. So being government departments, of course, they're always the first to introduce the government policy around acknowledging it, around talking about it, around having regular welfare checks, about critical debriefings, about having all the forms properly filled out, so that's one side, and that's good. But it doesn't mean to say that the police culture or, or the paramedic culture or the, the fire brigade culture then clicks in and properly utilises that system. It does tag you... In, in, in generalised ignorance, you do fear being tagged as someone weak and incapable and therefore you're going to be moved to the side. I, I think there is a way of just it being routinely accepted that a person in those areas has PTSD and can function and is allowed to function whilst their PTSD is managed. I would think then there'd be more people comfortable to seek help and disclose that type of diagnosis. Because I, I, I'm told I've had PTSD since the early 2000s. So that's a long time to be in that environment and increase my level of exposure and experience but be high functioning all the way along. So I do think there's a middle ground. It will take both sides, the individual, to allow themselves to be a bit soft and vulnerable and it takes the other side to see that as a, a to see that, to value that disclosure and not to use it as a convenient way of getting rid of someone. I know it's been a long time since you've done media interviews, particularly about this case, and um, it's. I'm very grateful that you've agreed to do this today and it's it's been fascinating and tragic and um, a privilege for you to have agreed to do this interview, so thank you. Thank you, Leah. I was so glad to have the opportunity. I did think as I was retired, I, I wouldn't get to reflect and thank all the, the team and, and, and the victims who had faith in us in the end. So you've given me that opportunity. I thank you. 
That Story was by Leah Harris. Produced and edited by Stuart Buckland. If domestic violence is an issue in your life, please reach out to Domestic Violence Services. If you are in immediate danger, call 000. To access 24-7 counselling and support, call 1800RESPECT. That's 1-800-737-732. This has been a 10 News First podcast for 10 Speaks. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.